Well, if you go back, it all began with democracy. In 2014, a joint Princeton-Northwest University paper concluded the United States no longer qualified necessarily as a democracy, more like an oligarchy, dominated by the interests of powerful and wealthy elite. In this episode, we're looking at the steps that allowed the oligarchy to develop with respect to campaign finance, Supreme Court case law, corporate personhood. You might say the political revolution is needed, but does our current economic system even allow for such a political revolution? Today, we are speaking to Mike Konzel, the director of progressive thought from the Roosevelt Institute and a co-author of a recent study, The Empirical Failures of Neoliberalism, about the threat neoliberal economics poses to democracy. Mike, how you doing? Uh, really well. Thank you so much for having me on. I want to start. Normally, you're supposed to start an interview by putting someone at ease. I want to start by, I have a bone to pick. I have a okay. bone to pick, Mike. The bone I want to pick is the use of the phrase neoliberal that I believe, well, no, let's not use me. Let's say, uh, let's say that a view, a view, lots of people are saying that neoliberal is a phrase that is used primarily by bots in order to bash the word liberal, in order to make it easier for conservative forces to win majorities and harder for liberal coalitions, including center liberal coalitions to coalesce to actually govern the United States? What say you? I think it's a useful phrase. I do think it gets overused and I think it gets used not particularly rigorously. Uh, at the Roosevelt Institute, we really do try to describe it as an intellectual movement, a theory of the state and a project to rebuild the state across Western countries and internationally. Um, to be one focused on the construction of markets as ends into themselves in all of human life to be built around market dependency. So we can go in a lot of different directions with that. But uh, yeah, I do think it gets overused. And crucially, I don't think it's a particularly useful political um, phrase where things like oligarchy or just, you know, the rich and everyone else um, does a lot more political work. But I think analytically, it's worthwhile to follow these strands of a real, a real ideas-based uh, project done on the right, done through the conservative movement, done through owners and bosses, to try to um, really refocus the state away from public ends and more towards private ends. Any other word we can use? Well, it depends on what aspect we're talking about. We can just talk uh, about oligarchy, which you brought up in the introduction. Um, you know, I, I bring up, you know, inequality. I bring up uh, market dependency for what every, everyday people have to deal with, uh, oligarchy for other people, or just conservative economics for how it often plays out in everyday lives. I might take conservative economics. I also find it one of, although I, I am aware of the intellectual tradition, and this is probably not the hill atop which I should die, uh, it is also a phrase that has been used to describe not only overuse, but used in multiple different ways, including when Clinton and Gore were nominated, described as such, and now described as such differently. Back then saying, oh, well, they're sort of the new liberals, as distinct from saying, no, no, they're the, they're the hardest core of corporatists. But setting aside my quibble, give us a little bit of a background on the Roosevelt Institute. Absolutely. So the Roosevelt Institute is the nonprofit partner of the Franklin Delano Roosevelt uh, Presidential Library. Uh, and it has three big parts. One is that it uh, does programming with the library, which is up in Hyde Park. And it is uh, when we're not social distancing and everyone can travel more is a wonderful trip. If you're in the area, the FDR library in upstate New York um, does, uh, you know, has all sorts of cool stuff about America, one of America's greatest presidents. 
Uh, we also have a campus network that's very active on over 100 campuses with huge amounts of geographic diversity. Uh, and they organize young people to be involved in politics uh, in their local communities, their colleges, and broader nationally. And then the stuff that I'm involved with is the Roosevelt Institute, which is a fellows-based think tank. We have about two dozen fellows who work on everything from banking in poor communities to international trade to macroeconomy. Our chief economist is Joseph Stiglitz, the Nobel Prize-winning economist, who's really pioneered a left-based critique of how globalization would pan out and did pan out and is at the forefront of all kinds of debates about macroeconomy and inequality. And we try to have a really uh, robust and rigorous view on things that really matter for the way um, private power has gotten really unbalanced by public power and uh, people and everyday uh, communities don't really have a say for in the ways in which corporate power is exercised in our country. If you're going to describe conservative economics, and maybe this is just such a cursory question that it barely bears asking, but I'm interested in your definition of if you were going to describe conservative economics if you want to say the words neoliberal economics that's of course your prerogative how would you define it so i i, I have a book coming out next year uh, through new press called um freedom from the market and there I, I really emphasize the concept of market dependency it comes from ellen wood and many other people in the left tradition which is to say that one of the things about capitalism that really i think people bristle at is the idea that we are dependent on the market for everything and i think one uh from our healthcare to our education to our uh you know everyday elements of our community is that the market infiltrates more and more of our lives. And I think this is a really important part for conservative economics is that more and more of our freedoms are understood to be like a market. The market is a form of freedom and our freedoms themselves are kind of like markets. So I think um, the denigration of the publicness in our economy uh, so whether it's progressive taxation, whether or not it's checks on corporate consolidation and power, um, whether or not it's the ability of workers to organize among themselves in unions, uh, whether or not it's just robust public programs from our colleges to social security, all of those publicness are denigrated. And instead, the private, but by private, I really mean owners and bosses are empowered through an affirmative project to rework laws in their favor. And you know that to me is the imbalance and that the real thing that has shifted. The other element of, of what I would consider conservative economics is something uh, on historian Quinn Slodan, uh, who has studied people who have described themselves as neoliberal. So not just a slur, not something bodying around on social media, but the people who really do your Frederick Hayek's or Milton Friedman's your people who sometimes have called themselves neoliberal, but certainly have believed that they were recreating a classical version, a new version of classical liberalism for our era after the Great Depression. You know, they, what they want to do is in case, uh, that's Quinn's word, uh, in case the market from democratic challenges. So wherever you see things in which markets are kind of quarantined off uh, and un unable to be held democratically accountable, whether it's a minimum wage, whether or not it's a say on the way um, our data uh, is used in, in online markets, that's where I really think the conservativeness of it really kicks in. If you were gonna identify the leading lights, the high priests of conservative economics, right-wing economics, uh, you said Hayek, who else should people need to be aware of if they're not already into the literature? Well, you know, the thought was really developed, uh, you know, in, the, in response to the Great Depression, in response to the great society and large liberal programs of the mid-century period. So there, you know, you Frederick Hayek still reads in a way that I think is very applicable to what 
people are arguing or trying to accomplish politically nowadays. Uh, Hayek famously said he was not a conservative, but I think his economic vision still comes up and through today. And, you know, and the other person obviously is Milton Friedman, capitalism and freedom, uh, he, you know, free to choose his books, his work, I think speak to where conservatives see their economic vision coming from. Is a testament that someone like Donald Trump was the person who kind of broke through the more free market, laissez-faire, um, free market, free trade version of it, though that his aspects are still very deeply entwined in what that project is trying to accomplish, for instance, in his uh, rolling back of labor rights, his, his um, cuts to progressive taxation and corporate taxation. You know, I think there's a, a lot of thinkers historically, and nowadays, you know, there's a lot of people on the right, but I don't think any of them necessarily speak with the totality and with the comprehensiveness that those thinkers did. I might throw James Buchanan in the mix, mm -hmm. uh, uh, referenced from uh, Nancy McLean's Democracy in Chains, the, uh, and, and this presupposes one of my potential answers to the question I will ask, but it's more interesting to ask you. If you were going to think about watershed events that spurred the growth of right-wing economics, uh, what would you identify if you were going to pick one or three or six? What would be critical watershed events that change the landscape from the namesake of the institution for which you work, sort of FDR era understanding, a Keynesian understanding of American economics, to uh, something closer to, to a Buchanan or Friedman view of economics in the United States? So I think, um, you know, obviously a lot of people started with um, uh, President Ronald Reagan and a lot of his actions in the early 80s, and they're incredibly important, uh, as is, um, you know, you mentioned earlier, um, people like President Bill Clinton, um, not necessarily being able to do a bold liberal project, but instead having to work with a much more constrained or even trying to triangulate and take ownership of traditionally conservative ideas. Uh, but I think you really want to start the clock in the 1970s. Uh, there, I think you would want to look at uh, things like the near bankruptcy of New York City. Uh, the historian Kim Phillips Fine has a fantastic book called Fear City, which is all about uh, the changes in New York in the 1970s. Um, that really, and it's interesting because, you know, New York is such a traditionally democratic stronghold, but there you can see through the, the structural adjustments that were done to the city, a real reworking of what citizens could demand from their, their uh, public, from their city, from their state. Um, you know, uh, tuition was introduced at colleges, which it had not existed before. Uh, public hospitals and public housing were rolled back. Um, communities were meant to take control of their schools, which created huge inequalities in the access to resources. And that's in a, a, what was and still is a very blue, very liberal area. The version of, of how they were going to execute the government and what you could expect changed dramatically. I personally, it's in my book uh, coming out next January, look at Governor Ronald Reagan in California and his war against the University of California school system. Um, he worked with the FBI to infiltrate, uh, or you know, he was very opposed to uh, the anti-war movement, but he also was very interested in introducing tuition. And though he was unsuccessful in what he wanted to do, he began a process um, of introducing tuition in the UC system, really broke that link. You know, the, obviously the the reduction in the high-end taxation of the early Reagan years, the breaking of unions, notably with the uh, airline strikes, uh, airline worker strikes, are all incredibly important. But you can see threads of it starting much earlier, and they were in reaction to the economic crises of the 1970s. And as we have economic crises now from the Great Depression through the COVID uh, recession, people wonder and fight and see if whether or not we might have another kind of paradigm shift on the order of that coming out of this. And I think it's too early to tell. I want to stick to the origin for a moment. And if I were telling the story 
as a right-wing economist, I would want to tell the story that it came from a British-Austrian uh, economist and then headed towards Ronald Reagan. And I'd want to call it neoliberal, so it was like new liberal, rather than calling it something else. So that's, what I would, that's the story I would tell if I were their propagandist. If I were somebody else, and in fact, I named her, so why don't I name Nancy McLean? I might tell a different story, that it was, uh, that it was the, 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 the roots came earlier, came from John C. Calhoun arguing in favor of the primacy of property over the primacy of democracy. And the case that John C. Calhoun was making was in favor of slavery. And that those arguments got dusted off, not waiting for the 1970s, not certainly waiting for Ronald Reagan, but right after Brown versus Board of Education, where Buchanan takes the Calhoun argument and makes the case for the privatization of schools so that white kids from the racist South don't have to be in integrated schools after Brown versus Board. And then eventually those arguments find their ways to the ears of, of uh, the Koch brothers who fund it to the tune of the greatest, uh, the, the, the best funded political machine that the country has ever seen. How would you quibble, add to, or subtract from that narrative? I'll call it the McLean narrative. Sure. So um, I, I, I'm not an expert in, in James Buchanan and the arguments around uh, the book Democracy in China. I, I throw out two things. One is that there is a longstanding conservative tradition uh, everywhere, and especially in the United States, that really does focus on this kind of primacy of property and particularly not just property as um, a thing you might own, but as a relationship that um, bosses over workers, that the idea of democratic challenges to hierarchy uh, are destabilizing in such a way that they need to be fought. Um, the author and philosopher, uh, political philosopher, Corey Robin, uh, has a really elegant uh, definition of conservatism that is about the um, worry about, nostalgic for, and fighting uh, to restore this kind of hierarchy. And the hierarchy of a boss over a worker or an owner over uh, people who work within a capitalist system is one of the primary forms of hierarchy. And so there's definitely that long-standing conservative tradition that um, is evident in conservative defenses of slavery and the slave south and the expansion of slavery in the 19th century and uh, for the continuation and the creation and continuation of Jim Crow system. Um, one thing I've paid, I, I read a lot about and studied for my book was uh, the fights around uh, public accommodation law and the Civil Rights Act. And there, the question of should the government be able to pass a law that says if you are a hotel owner, you have to be able to serve anyone uh, irregardless of race, if they are uh, a legitimate customer, they're not you know, drunk, they have the ability to pay, uh, they're not a nuisance, um, should you be able to, should you have an obligation to serve anyone who comes? And we see it continue in the question about uh, bakeries and gay weddings. And there, if you look at that public accommodation law, and if you look at, um, you know, the question of whether or not you should be able to racially discriminate in the job hiring process, there you see a lot of people who would go on to define the conservative movement really draw a strong line against the Civil Rights Act. Uh, um, a lawyer, Bill Rehnquist, who became just, Chief Justice Rehnquist, uh, was very involved in fighting against that part of the Civil Rights Act. The idea that you couldn't legislate private civil rights actions, you could only deal with what the government does, um, uh, 
Bork, who went on to redefine uh, a much more conservative view of antitrust, was very involved against that. Barry Goldwater, who was running for president, uh, probably spiked a huge part of his campaign, but realigned the Southern South with the Republican Party by opposing that part of the Civil Rights Act. And even now, libertarians um, like uh, um, uh, Rand Paul, uh, Ron Paul's son, who's in the Senate, uh, you know, in a famous interview right when he got in the Senate, said that he opposed that part of the Civil Rights Act, even though that's really the, one of the defining lines. So there's absolutely been this distinction between, you know, trying to denigrate the public, which in our country's history after the Civil War has been so tied to civil rights, to labor rights, to the linking of both of them, to the ability of uh, people of color and women and LGBTQ people to exist in public as equal citizens. Absolutely, there is a strong lineage of conservative thought that's been a strong reaction against that. So let's move from, for a second, the background to the empirical. Based on, and all of us are view this stuff through our jaundiced eye of presuppositions and prejudices and preferences. But if you try to take the right-wing economic argument that a focus on deregulation will lift all boats and everybody will do better, what do you look at to try to evaluate how well that basic tenant. And if I'm looking at origin, by the way, I didn't mention Ayn Rand. If I were looking at part of the rise of this, again, I, I, don't, I can't decouple it from the popularization of, of Ayn Rand. Do you want to comment on that, by the way, push back or amplify before I turn it into a question? No, I think that's good. When you take that argument and try to put it alongside empirical analysis, how does it stack up? Or maybe even more importantly, how do you evaluate it? Evaluate the, the conservative arguments about the economy. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, um, one is, I mean, first is just to understand what is happening in the world. Um, before you kind of approach it with an idea, at least me personally, I think most people do, uh, that you try to approach as a social scientist and you say, okay, what are, for instance, the trends in growth? What is happening to income? Who is benefiting from growth? Is growth increasing or slowing? And what reasons do we think that it could be either? Then I try to really think through what are the conservative arguments about things that they might see or argue that I would not necessarily as a person on the left. So, you know, often I think one classic one is that um, inequality might be increasing, which is in fact increasing, it has increased quite dramatically over the last 30 years, but it doesn't matter as much because um, growth is increased. Uh, and people are gaining higher incomes. So, you know, there's more pie, and even if someone gets a bigger slice of the pie as a percentage, everyone ends up with more because the economy is growing so much faster because we've deregulated and reworked the economy to work better for owners and bosses. And so one of the things my paper did uh, that you mentioned earlier is that it kind of just looked through it and said, okay, what are the arguments and what, what are the side effects that we're seeing? And you know, we kind of see the worst of all worlds, that uh, inequality has grown, but the growth rate of the economy has slowed dramatically since 1980. It's a little bit more consistent, it's less volatile, but it's definitely slowed. So that's not something that's happened. And then you say, okay, so inequality is increasing growth slowing, but are people better off uh, than their parents? And we actually find that the percentage, this is a work by the economist Raj Chetty uh, from Harvard, you know, you look at how many people are better off than their parents, and that number's dropped dramatically. I, in the mid-century period, roughly 80% of people would be better off than their parents. Now it's about 50. So almost half of people will not be better off than their parents, even when you do all the adjustments to ensure your, you know, the fact that healthcare is more expensive or your iPhone is so much nicer than it was 10 years ago. So I look at, you know, I kind of just approach as a social scientist and see like what's happening in the world. 
And then when I try to think through, okay, what arguments are working, what are not, I try to really think through what's the case as you would best make it from someone on that side. And I found, and I, and I still do find that um, they don't, they're not up to snuff, that a lot of the arguments that people deploy to justify um, the changes in our economy that were engineered affirmatively by the state over the last 30 or 40 years just don't pan out. And the, there are real consequences for everyday people. Let's first take growth, and then I want to take inequality right? Size of pie and then distribution. When it comes to growth, the basic case is there might be some concession. We'll see much more growth and maybe there'll be some inequality. But as you said, it doesn't matter as much because everybody will be able to have a flat screen. Uh, everybody will have a little nicer house. So the, the fact that somebody else might have six houses shouldn't matter to you. Heck, Bible says a similar thing. Don't worry about what somebody else has got what, uh, if, as long as you get what you need. But then I look at a couple of things that concern me. I look at, or maybe inspire me, I look at some of the greatest periods of uh, growth of the American economy happened at a time with our biggest middle class. And I also look at studies that I can't cite right now that actually indicate a slowing of American innovation during our greatest times of recent growth, that the economy has become much better at extracting value, but not as clearly any better at producing new value, that the real times of invention were the era of the microwave oven, less so the era of the invention of the Angry Birds app. Are you prepared to concede the argument on growth or is there an argument that in fact growth itself in innovation and in overall aggregate wealth is promoted by a more robust middle class? I, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I believe that. I think one way I put it is that one thing that some economists have argued in the past, and I think this is part of a period in which a lot of liberal economists became a slightly more conservative without becoming conservative economists. Uh, is that a lot of economists started to argue that there was a necessary trade-off between equality and growth. That the more you tried to build a more robust working and middle class, you would necessarily have to slow down growth. That there was a necessary trade-off between the two. Because the things you would do to try to um, build out a middle class and a, working, a stronger working class would necessarily detract from growth, which, you know, and, and the idea being that, you know, you know, there's a lot of other things that go with it, but what a lot of researchers have found is that there is no such case. We have a lot of countries that have a much more robust middle class, both cross-sectionally uh, across many countries. We have by far the highest inequality along with uh, England. And there are many other countries that don't. Uh, they have much more robust um, equality among their income and a much more robust middle and working class. And then we can also see in our own time periods. And what researchers have found, the IMF found essentially that there's no relationship. Um, that within the range of Western countries that in time periods we'd be talking about, um, that if we saw an increase in inequality, that there is no higher growth and a decrease in inequality through transfers, through more worker power, there's no decrease in growth. So I'd say that there isn't really a relationship, which is to say that the inequality that we have is the political choice, and we've made the choice to make it that way. Second is that um, I think a lot of the abuses that have happened in our corporate sector over the last 20 years, a lot of the diverting of resources and talent towards zero-sum financial activity, financial sector activity like Wall Street, towards looting activity like through private equity, like through really broken corporate governance structures that really emphasize short-term payouts uh, like dividends and buybacks instead of long-term innovation that is riskier, but ultimately what we need for society to become more productive. Um, that has happened parallel with uh, weakening wages, weakening unionization, uh, a more extractive and predatory uh, product 
uh, environment for everyday end users and people. So it is absolutely the case that the kinds of things that would help the middle class don't harm growth and even probably help it. Moving to inequality, how do we evaluate the case that inequality doesn't matter, right? The It seems to me the argument stopper when having an economic argument with, you know, one of our conservative friends is, is when they say, oh, well, we've got to do something about wealth inequality. And they tend to want to say income inequality to narrow the range uh, and then say, well, we've got to do something about that. And then we'll say, well, education. And if you continue it at all, eventually you can usually get, well, at least often get them to say, well, that's not the thing to worry about. The thing to worry about is does everybody get their flat screen? Not if somebody has 6,222 flat screens and everybody else just has one. Don't worry about gaps. How do you look empirically about the relevance of wealth gaps? Richard, Richard Wilkinson comes to my mind, uh, but how do you think about it? Sure. So I'd say a, a couple different approaches. One is that, and I think this is the key thing that you kind of either see or you don't, and it kind of make, makes you a conservative or liberal, is the economy is something that everyone does together. It's not something that you know, owners or rich people happen to do, and then the rest of us all just kind of show up and benefit from. You know, everyone who you know, if you think of what, what is wealth, it's, you know, stock market equity or the bond market, but that's all just claims on future income. That's all just pieces of paper that say you have a certain kind of relationship vis-a-vis -vis what workers are creating, what delivery people are out there delivering, what everyday people are out there consuming. And that, you know, just because someone happens to sit at, at one part of this large interconnected system that is a modern economy, where they happen to be the capital owners, doesn't mean that they have a priority claim on having the entire economy work for them. And it doesn't necessarily mean that them expanding their claim of the pie uh, doesn't come from everyone else and doesn't portray really bad things sometimes. So that's the first thing is that you can't just look at it and say, well, you know, there are job creators and then everyone else kind of just shows up. It's like, well, no, who's consuming the things that you're creating? You know, they're people and they're workers and where do they get the income from? So, you know, I think that's a very important element. Second is on a much more practical uh, brass tax ways. Um, you know, sometimes people say, well, it's just, just worry about poverty. And then they don't do anything about poverty, right? So you see this in conservative spaces all the time. It's like, well, you know, only thing we should really work, worry about is people in poverty. It's like, okay, well, are we going to expand Medicaid in the states that don't have Medicaid? Are we going to... Uh, stop mass incarceration? Are we going to have actually robust education and healthcare and protections? Are we going to have job programs for people who don't have jobs? Uh, and then when they don't do that, I think it shows a real lie to even that element. So if people who were uh, in favor of only worrying about poverty were really sincere about a universal basic income and healthcare and a safety net, then maybe we could talk, but I don't even hear that. So then it feels very disingenuous sometimes. And then last, I think there's a lot of reasons to worry about a very rich, powerful, highly unequal society perpetuating itself and creating uh, an economy that is sluggish, that is highly concentrated, highly orientated towards short-term payouts instead of long-term investments. Uh, that is predatory and extractive, and using their wealth to perpetuate that through uh, the government, through uh, powerful um, intellectuals and, and you know lobbyists and many other people who uh, retain organ society, that you can end up in this very bad economy that is very profitable for some people, but very bad for everyone else. Are you a Rich Wilk Richard Wilkinson guy? If you do, you see his TED talk, the impact of uh, wealth quality on well income inequality, excuse me, on nations, or or read the Spirit Level. I've read the Spirit Level. I didn't see the TED talk, but um, that work is very um, provocative and important. 
important. It just shows that places that are more equal, it's always tough to tell the causation of it, but you know, places that have a more robust middle class have better healthcare. They have better communities and cities because they have some money to spend. They have some political power to use. So they make sure their schools work and the transportation's on time. Uh, and that equality is not just a balance sheet number, though those numbers are quite important, but that if you give middle class and working class people resources and power, they'll use it in a way that ensures that they're taken care of. And that's the whole point. And so when you concentrate wealth and power among a small amount of people, it's not surprising that every other system, not just the labor market, but that our health systems and our education systems and our democracy also only work for the very rich. And the basic case, you might actually summarize it. Yeah, so you talk instead of me. Uh, give the basic summary of the Wilkinson thesis. And yet, and by the way, I do rely on book jackets and TED Talks more than actually reading full books. That's why I like to interview people like you who've done the research. And that's, you can, you're the democracy nerd. I, you know, help facilitate, I hope, sometimes. Well, I, it has been some time since I've read it. But uh, basically is that there's a strong correlation between income inequality and other measures of wealth being, be it uh, life expectancy, chronic illness, uh, and so on and so forth. It has been a long time since I've read it. I know there's a lot of debate about how to understand the causation of that, but um, I don't think it's absurd to understand that places where the middle class is doing better on their incomes, like in their paychecks, tend to do better in terms of their health measures, their life expectancy, their education, their literacy. Uh, and we should you know, understand that Income inequality is not just a walled off thing. That's just one part of our lives. It's that it reflects broader equality in our economy and in all spheres of our life. And so it is worthwhile understanding that it is a robust project uh, and that you can't just cleave it off. There's, there are at least two things I find really interesting about it. One, one is sort of the basic thesis because it goes to the heart of some of what we're talking about, some of the heart of the basic right-wing economic case that, well, it'll raise everybody's boats to the second. Well, yeah, maybe it'll raise some boats more than others, but, you know, everybody will be above water in a, in a better way. He says, well, no, after you reach some level of wealth in a nation, getting even wealthier doesn't seem to have significant impact on crime rate, on life expectancy, on alcoholism, on any real other thing we care about that we would count. But if you don't do something about inequality other than make it worse, it has a big impact. Inequality has a big impact on all those other metrics. So that's one thing I find interesting. The other is that causal question, which we can move on from you don't have a particular comment on it, but that some of it is um, that, that some of his thesis or his conclusion, maybe only his hypothesis there, uh, is that it has something to do with stress. That in fact, if I, I am a social animal, so are you. Uh, so is Kyle Curtis who booked us and I'm so thankful he did it for this interview. That if I, and I think about when I was a little kid, I was a little kid and I lived in a rich neighborhood and my, you know, I grew up with a single mom and it caused significant stress. And I saw it with other kids too. And where kids would want to, you know, lie about what their dad did for a living, where kids would just sort of feel bad and not do as well in school or get it. It actually impacted people's lives. And I remember moving to Portland, Oregon as a seventh grader and realizing that, wow, when I found out there were some popular kids who were poor, I couldn't even believe it. When I found out that the quarterback of our football team was a Native American kid, you know, he had managed to get a, get himself a polo shirt, but he came from a family that was on welfare and his and in the same social circle had a kid whose dad was anesthesiologist and middle class, middle class kids in between. And that was off my scope. Like coming from Southern California prior to that, I didn't have that experience. Do you think that we undervalue stress as a driver of American culture and one of those economic outs outcomes that we should care about? Or do you think that Wilkinson's title, the spirit level, is kind of silly hooey and 
and we should really be talking about numbers, not about sort of psychology. No, I don't think it's silly. I actually think it's the most pertinent and important question. There's another book um, by Angus Deaton and co-authors uh, called Deaths of Despair, I think is what it's called. But the, the, a body of research that's centered around the idea of deaths of despair, which is basically that life expectancy has stopped increasing for everyday working class people, particularly it is leveled off for whites. It's um, still increasing, but at a much lower level for people of color in this country. And um, the fact that I, I, there's an empirical debate about whether or not it's decreasing or just no longer increasing, depending on how you measure it. And I, I'm not at the forefront of that. But the fact that life expectancy has taken a very different turn in our country, even though we're becoming much wealthier, uh, and that life expectancy is in fact going up in all of our, in, in peer nations, um, speaks to something that's really broken in the United States. And if you look at what's driving it, a lot of the drivers are suicides, are uh, drug abuse, you know, a, a, a lot of uh, prescription drug abuse and so on. And that speaks to uh, a psychological dimension and a stress dimension that is very tied up with economics and very tied up with uh, precarity, uh, our ability to just live our lives um, and be, you know, be free to just get by. Um, is really curtailed if you don't have access to money. That's if you don't have access to money in our capitalist economy, you're really in a limbo and you're really in, in bad straits. And so the fact that it's become harder to be poor in our country, uh, I think, has really devastated a, a lot of people uh, at a psychological level. Though it's very much tied to the material resources of what we have, and so you know. Where, where, what's the exact driver and what's the exact outcome? We know the things that can combat it. We know that a robust system of social insurance, we know that uh, richer communities that are properly invested in and don't suffer under austerity. Uh, we know that jobs that are good and dignified and that are part of a union and have a high minimum wage um, make people much better off. You know, we're seeing all these studies come in from minimum wage increases that are happening across the country at the state and local level, the big $15 pushes. And the level of psychological comfort that comes with those higher wages uh, is so palatable and so real and really make people better off. So it's absolutely important. It's a psychological dimension that has a material root that can be addressed. Even if we can't necessarily figure out the right psychotherapy, we know some things that will absolutely work. And there are things we can do if we want to. And I do want to get there. For those who are listening, and usually they know the democracy nerd, we talk a lot about process, right? We talk about campaign finance. We talk about voting systems. We talk about access to the ballot. And that tends to be what we nerd out on here. And there isn't a time when I don't butt up against, a, and I think we butt up against in our conversations, the ultimate relevance of inequality as both a driver of why we care about democracy and what's going to be necessary to make democracy work. Ultimately, no matter what you do with campaign finance reform, Rupert Murdoch could buy himself a cable network, uh, even if you limit how much he can give to a given candidate. So that's a little bit of my excuse or my, uh, my gratitude for people engaging in this conversation. I think we will be having more conversations like this on the podcast. Let me ask this, though. Very often, we conflate, or I want to say we, I want to say the American political argument conflates regulation alongside uh, tax and transfer. The idea of putting rules around the economy tends to have the same political allies and enemies as the folks who are arguing around distribution of wealth being done in a more equitable way, that economic opportunity, that uh, social mobility happening in a more fluid way. Do those need to be viewed as similar approaches because they have roughly the same allies and enemies, 
should they be viewed alongside each other with, you know, you have uh, corporate ownership arguing against both things and the post FDR democratic coalition arguing in favor of both things, or should we try to disaggregate them and potentially making arguments that, well, heck, even Andrew Yang in the last presidential campaign was offering, uh, talking about universal basic, basic income, that is a small government, big equality move, potentially, right? Where you don't necessarily have to have a big administration to send people checks. And at the same time, it could do something around uh, addressing inequality. Should we keep those things conflated or should we separate them a little bit? I think the most important thing for the left to do is to understand that those are separate things, but they're the same things. You kind of have to take it apart before you put it together. So one thing you hear a lot is like, just let the economy be and we can redistribute whatever happens as a result of it. And I think that has fallen out of favor for a variety of reasons, uh, mostly because it's just not working very well. Um, you know, post the taxes and transfers do in fact uh, ameliorate a lot of inequality, but it's harder to do the more inequality you have. Uh, for one. And second is that it becomes harder over time as inequality grows um, as a result of a growing economy that is unequal. Uh, but the thing I would always emphasize is that, you know, those transfers are part of the economy just as much as regulation is. There's no, there's no pre-political economy that you can point to that taxes and transfers just come in afterwards. You know, take taxes, for instance. One thing we, a lot of people believe, and I think the evidence shows, is that levels of high marginal tax rates. So that's when bosses and CEOs have to pay 60, 70, 80% of the last dollar they get. So this is not what everyday people pay, but what the rich pay. It changes their behaviors to try to loot their company. Uh, there's no reason to try to give yourself a $50 million payday uh, on a short-term profit if you know a lot of that tax is going to the government. And as a result, there's more reason to keep money in the firm, which then changes the nature of investment and production. Same thing, you know, we know this for a carbon tax, right? A carbon tax would help combat uh, global warming. And so you can't really just separate the taxes and transfers out. Certain kinds of transfers, uh, like an earned income tax credit, might make people more dependent on the labor force uh, for to survive and give a little bit of power to bosses where other kinds of transfers like universal health care for all, uh, might empower workers over their bosses. So you can't just separate them off, is the one thing I really emphasize. And second is that we need both, right? There are certain kinds, you know, the inability to make, the, the precarity that comes from the inability to earn wages, whether or not you're retired, you're too young, you're disabled, you're unemployed, you're a caregiver, you're educating yourselves, that is for social insurance to solve. And that's, not something that just comes with more skills, um, though it's important to educate yourselves for a, a high-tech labor force. That kind of insecurity can only be remedied properly through social insurance. On the other hand, things like your conditions at work, whether or not you have a job, whether or not you have, whether or not there's a, a minimum wage or a maximum number of working hours, whether or not you're part of a union, you have some due process, whether or not the corporations you work for are actually producing good things that benefit the economy and benefit growth, or whether or not they're largely selling, you know, abusive drugs or financial products that don't do anything except blow up. That kind of stuff, which is very much tied to transfers and regular and, and uh, taxes, is just as much a valid part of the economy, an equal society we want to build, that the government's role in it has to be emphasized just as much as the taxes and transfers. There's a very rambly way of saying both and. 
would you still describe the United States as a dynamic economy? Social mobility between 1940 and 1980, pretty significant. Uh, how do you characterize social mobility since essentially Ronald Reagan to now? I would say it's not a mobile or dynamic country on either end. You could use that phrase to talk about just everyday people, about whether or not they'll be better off than their parents. That number has dropped dramatically in the last generation. Uh, about whether or not um, their ability to, you know, end up uh, higher up in the income distribution. That number is, I think, according to the best evidence, flat uh, in a more unequal society, at which point the ability to move around in it matters dramatically more. So I, we are not a more dynamic uh, society on, on the mobility front, uh, and we're probably, we are absolutely less of one than we were before. On the economy side, which I think is much more interesting, or just as, just as interesting, important not to forget, uh, it's a much more concentrated economy. We know that. Um, it is an economy that is investing significantly less given how profitable corporations are at this point. Um, the ratio between profitability and investment has collapsed. Um, you know, we see all these huge paydays for corporations. We see them end up with stock buybacks and stock dividends and huge CEO payouts. But the rate at which firms are investing has not gone up. For all the talk about like gig economy and Silicon Valley and entrepreneurship, the rate of small business startups is, and this is before COVID, before the uh, pandemic depression we're in, uh, the rate of startups and the percentage of people uh, who are employed at a small business or the percentage of small businesses have all declined dramatically. The economy has become much more sclerotic and much more older. It's not necessarily bad, but we also see the decline in investment. So in terms of a productive economy, uh, you know, for all the razzle-dazzle and, and ideology about the idea it's a, a small business entrepreneurial economy, it's actually a, a much more shareholder-dominated, older, and less productive economy. So I think on either end, um, we've lost a lot of the mobility that gives America its real character. I think it's a real tragedy. Relationship between, let's say, education system and inequality. The, uh, might, we just want to comment on that but also the big drivers. I mean, it seems that uh, college costs are up, healthcare costs are up without wages getting up. As you try to understand the biggest drivers for growing inequality, other things you would identify as those biggest drivers. Obviously, marginal tax rates are, are a big one. Minimum wage not keeping up with, uh, with the costs that I just mentioned. What do you see as the biggest drivers, the things that we haven't already mentioned? Things that have driven inequality you may not think of. Um, so at the low end, one thing is just the minimum wage. Um, it's changing uh, because states and municipalities are taking the leadership role on this, but the minimum wage really does provide a very important floor on the income distribution. If your impression of the minimum wage is like kids with a summer job at a movie theater or something, that is not minimum wage work in the service sector economy the last several decades. And it's primarily, and it's uh, dis far disproportionately women and women of color who benefit from minimum wage increases. So if you wanna flatten the lower end of the income distribution, um, that's very easy. It's good public programs that are well-funded and a higher minimum wage, full stop. Uh, and very little else will do it. Um, also an important element is a child allowance or giving income to low income parents uh, who have kids. Our system right now with tax credits and the way the tax code is set up helps middle class and upper middle class families with kids with a lot of resources and a lot of money uh, through child tax credits and so on. But if you don't have a tax liability, that doesn't help you very much. 
flourish. So uh, it's important to help all families with kids, but especially poorer families with kids who don't particularly have a tax liability, having a refundable tax credit as Canada does, as the UK does, um, as a conservative government introduced in the UK, I believe, uh, would do a lot to help inequality at the low end. So if you really do care about opportunity and poverty, we know how to solve it. We know, you know, there's a bill in the Senate right now uh, sponsored by Michael Bennett and uh, Sherrod Brown, two senators, that would overnight reduce child poverty by about 40 or 50%. Uh, and that experts across the field agree with that number. And so that's, I, I think, a really important thing to remember. On the other end, we really do have to be thinking in terms, not just of like some bad Apple CEOs, but that the entire corporate market is structured towards owners and bosses in a way that really has slowed down their ability to innovate and provide for what our economy needs. And that it's not just a matter of a misguided regulation or um, something, you know, like, you know, like a tax tweak that would fix it or if the government got out of the way or encouraged this kind of other thing, it would solve itself. But we really do need a complete overhaul on the order of the New Deal or in reverse of the order of what happened in the 70s and 80s, to really restructure our corporations towards away from short-term shareholder profits and away from consolidation and monopolization. Because without it, I think we're gonna see, and I think we're gonna especially see it in the recovery period from this uh, COVID depression, uh, that firms just won't invest enough. And without that investment, we don't get to full employment. And without full employment, workers really do suffer. So let's talk about that reorder. Almost a perfect segue to what makes this conversation maybe more pointedly relevant now. We are in the midst of an economic slowdown that is only beaten in recent history, if that's even recent history, by the Great Depression, right? We're, we're significantly uh, surpassing the, uh, the Great Recession in unemployment and reduced economic activity. It was, in fact, the Great Depression that during which much of the, much of the momentum that built the election of FDR, institute for which you work, is now inspired by and named after. Do you see us 80 years later going through a potentially similar reordering of the American economy? Or do you think it's just as likely that it'll be more like the Great Recession where there'll be a it'll be a bunch of bummer, some, there might be some Occupy protests, and ultimately the rich will get even richer after that, and it won't fundamentally change what's going on? How do you, see, how do you sort of read the crystal ball? I would be lying if I didn't say I was pessimistic uh, and um, How come? You know, and nervous. I, I think um, what makes you what makes you pessimistic? We have a really broken political system. We have a Senate that is so has become such a sclerotic veto point, perhaps um, unique, certainly since the uh, 1960s or the like it's. The, abil the ability of the Senate to require 60 votes to do anything has become such a barrier. Um, and it's not clear to me that even if the Democrats sweep the government this fall, because of the way Trump has been handling this crisis in a very failed way, um, if the Democrats take the House or take the Senate and the White House, you know, they still can't do anything without 60 votes. There's very limited ability to do things through reconciliation. Are they gonna overturn the filibuster? Maybe, maybe not. Um, so the, the, the broken nature of the Senate, I think, is really worrisome. Um, the broken nature of our judiciary uh, has me very worried. I feel like conservatives have no longer bothered to try to really 
argue, I mean, if you remember the Ryan plan during the Obama years, and you remember like all the, you know, like you remember, it was not my politics, but it was a, a vision of what to do with a Congress and what laws you could pass and programs you could try to sell people on. I don't think they were good programs. I think they would have harmed a lot of people, but there was a sense of a governing project where now I, I really do wonder if the conservative movement is going to fight things in the judiciary for the next generation and the real damage that will do to the public. Well, let's pause, let's pause that. We don't need to guess. Let's just be, let's just be really clear. And that, that is absolutely the plan, right? We know, yes. we know that we're headed towards a Lochner court. Uh, we, we need to, I think, uh, not merely speculate or be academics, but sound the alarm. That's where things are headed. And to give one more piece of evidence was an Ezra Klein interview with George Will, where he essentially said as such, where in fact, in his most recent book, he praised the Lochner era court. And, and, and this ought to just make like a, like a cartoon when the, when the hat pops off and there's steam blowing out of the head. This is what should happen when I, when, after I say what I said, for anybody who's been tracking the American judiciary art, uh, argument really since Roe versus Wade, really since in the last 40 years, the argument has been, we don't want activist judges, really since Brown versus Board of Education, really more like 70 years. We don't want activist judges, we don't want activist judges. And what George Will said in his most recent book and in his, uh, and in his podcast interview was, well, you know, we're gonna, we probably do need courts, we'll need courts to do more to constrain to, in fact, these were not his words, but these are Nancy McLean's words, to put democracy in chains. This was, and this is the project, has been the project of the Koch brothers. It is why it is becoming increasingly hard for me to just try to treat democracy as a referee exercise, sort of saying, hey, what are the sides doing? And why I ended up looking at things through more of a jaundiced political, uh, partisan eye. But, uh, but anyway, let me interject by shouting agreement with your humble speculation, please continue. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the, the Lochner era revisionism is actually quite astute and quite um, it, it's quite shocking how open it is right now. And then the war on democracy on voting rights, which uh, we may see really hit full steam this fall if you know conservatives uh, push hard against mail-in votes while there's a you know threat of a, a pandemic or threat of a resurgence in this virus if it's not under control uh, which it may or may not be so you know I, I think our institutions are in real rough shape right now and the inequality is so strong and so entrenched that i worry uh, quite a bit um now that said there's i think a, there's a lot of hope and optimism about 2008 and the great recession and what could it be where now i think there's a lot more clear-headed you know, is it uh, uh, optimism of the will, pessimism, or pessimism of the will, optimism of the intellect, or whatever it is, people are much more clear-eyed about the real challenges we have. So that might give people an opportunity to really organize and try to exercise power in a way that isn't wish fulfillment or isn't just a hope that it's going to get fixed on its own with some time, because uh, I think people are starting to really wake up to the challenges we face. I'll throw in one more to your list. And I recognize that, that I, some, I realize I, I do even want to treat some of these as chances to lobby the intelligentsia uh, with, with additional thinking, sometimes just passing it along from other people we have a chance to talk to. But it's basically about the media landscape, something that in the, in the era of Upton Sinclair, in the era of trying to fight back against an overweening industrial, uh, industrial revolution, the tool of the media could tell that story. In an era of an information revolution, 
where it is not the means of production that people are arguing about, but in fact, the means of information. And if the means of information are in fact owned, then what's the tool? To quote yet another, head, another book jacket, who will tell the people? Uh, this is maybe the essence of my concern about, uh, you know, to use your word, the essence of the pessimism, the degree to which I share. I'll, I'll ask a question. Mm -hmm. Anything giving you any optimism? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I don't know. Uh, no, I don't know if anything's actually giving me optimism right now. Um, I think people are understanding the scales at which the battle needs to be fought. I think we're going into this depression with uh, having come out of the Great Recession as a trial run for this uh, Great Depression that we're facing uh, with the COVID response. I think people are much more serious about the scale of the macroeconomic things that will have to be done. So we've already spent $2 trillion, which is great. Uh, we'll probably need to spend three to five more. Uh, by the time it's over. Uh, the Federal Reserve is not uh, dilly-dallyed around and instead got straight to the business of trying to lend to broader market participants. They will probably need to do a lot more, uh, especially uh, for smaller businesses, before this is over. So the fact that we're not already in the bad place of retrenchment and austerity and cynical reactions is encouraging, but we'll probably get there soon. And I, I really hope we have the antibodies to try to fight it. This gets back to maybe how I started. This gets back to my quibble and why I bristle when I hear neoliberal. And it's the title of your book. I haven't taken the trouble to write a book, so I should only honor and be grateful that you wrote one and gave it any damn title at all. But the at this point in the movie, I fear that we are not facing an academic argument. In the face of a global pandemic, the idea that, well, we'll just reward the, the powerful, the expense of the powerless, and everything is going to work out. I don't think, not a meaningful percentage of Americans who actually look, if you were going to impanel a policy jury, if you were going to try to solve this through sortition and try to impanel a group of demographically and geographically representative members of the United States and give them the very best arguments to say, hey, do you, do you think Hayek basically had it right? Do you think James Buchanan basically had it right? Or do you think that on occasion, some of the, you know, the Keynes or, or FDR sort of had some of this stuff right. I think if you had a jury of 48, I think you'd have thir a 36 to 12 victory for democracy. In my own view, is we're not facing an academic argument as much. I don't think related to that, in that respect, I don't know that we're facing a small d democratic argument uh, in like, well, what's the greatest benefit for the greatest number in a utilitarian sense. I do think we're facing an argument and a fight with respect to power and propaganda, that now the modern right-wing movement is not one that is merely trying to have some Eisenhower conservative notion, but is organized around identity. And it even concerns me that right now stimulus was able to be passed because Republicans said, well, as long as it comes from us, it's okay if the government spends money. If it comes from a black president who is a Democrat, who's been vilified on Fox News, if it were the same thing, if it were the same stimulus package, it couldn't get out. I'm now worried about that. Has your viewpoint around Democrat, in the same way that my nerdiness around process has started to transmogrify into thinking about sort of your school of the world and start thinking about economics. Does your work on kind of the economic argument in the country end up sort of shifting you to thinking about, well, do we need a significant transformation in how we run elections and decide governmental decisions? Yeah, I think we need to be thinking much more critically and much more aggressively about how people vote and whether or not they're able to vote. Um, my friend Sean McLary, uh, Data for Progress, emphasizes that automatic voter registration is probably one of the best, simplest things we can do to try to build a more just society because just having it so you're automatically registered to vote when you say go to get Medicaid or you get a, a driver's license, as simple as that. 
uh, makes a world of difference. And obviously, it's going to be very much on the agenda uh, coming up, up with this uh, uh, presidential election. Um, so I think that stuff's incredibly important. I think, I hope people are starting to think a little bit more strategically on it. They kind of have to because um, the, ma the mask is really coming off on the right on a lot of this voting stuff. I mean, it probably has if you've been paying attention as, as you guys do. Uh, but I think it's becoming more and more apparent at how unapologetic the assault on voting rights are in this country. And so that we need more robust protections in order to get anything out the door. Because um, I think if we keep thwarting the will of people who are suffering under this economy, you know, then nothing will get done to change it. Yeah. And I included probably, I tangled together three thoughts in one big barely a question, but so that I untangle two of them. You mentioned voting process. Appreciate that. Shout out to the bus project and the folks who, who push automatic voter registration to get us started here in Oregon. Plug, plug. The other piece is how much, and I, I'm trying to avoid saying polarization because I do not view the political world as equivalent polls in any way that stands up to any scrutiny, but the cultification of the right-wing project, that it's organization around uh, white conservative identity and its uh, resistance and the ability to manipulate that resistance against something that is born from the wrong parent, the wrong political party parent, also makes me concerned about the ability of a democratic party coalition to govern. The other piece that I failed to finish was just to circle back on my quibble and then we can move past it forever, is that if we use neoliberal, we are bashing the word liberal. If you say neoconservative, then as they, as folks were doing during the Iraq war, you're bashing the word conservative, right? You're bashing both an idea of how international policy is, is governed and you are engaging in the sort of linguistic propaganda fight in potentially a helpful way. If you say neoliberal, well, then you got to sort of explain, no, no, we don't, we don't mean what you think is liberal. And then all of a sudden though, you still have a bunch of people saying, well, liberal is bad. Even if what they mean is, well, no, a different kind of liberal, FDR kind of liberal is good. And that's, that's why I get my hairs up. Feel free to respond to that. Or we can talk about the relationship between tax rates and income share before we go. Um, I, 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 totally, I totally understand that point. And, uh, sometimes the phrase uh, libertarian uh, means more what we want, uh, or a centrist Democrat if we want to restore the FDR model. Of what liberalism means, I think are both really good, important uh, counterpoints or, or things that can be used to often convey the same things. And even, I mean, even, I mean, I'd say right wing, but even that, like, right also means correct. The, the basic understanding of a shared language to communicate about this stuff, I think we're behind. I think the, I think that is something that we still need to develop better, which is why I flag it. Also, you don't need to listen to me. I also pronounce it gerrymandering instead of gerrymandering. So I'm a weirdo. And is that I, the right way to say it? Who's to say right? The dude's name, it's named after was Elbridge Gary. Okay, that's how he pronounced his name. And then it was called, and it was in print and it was gerrymandering. But once you've said it a bunch of times, right? And, and, yeah. if, you're a, and if you're an English student, you'd say, well, if it's a Latin root, it should be gerrymandering. If it's Germanic root, it should be gerrymandering. Or maybe it's the other way around. Who, who's to say tomato, tomato? I say gerrymandering because of the dude's name. Uh, tax rates and income share. If you were going to do something about education or tax rates and, or unionization, rank those three things, tax rates, education, unionization, how would you rank them? in their importance to addressing inequality? Or is it such an absurd question? Is it such a both and proposition that you reject the question entirely, which is very fair? No, uh, I think that's actually really important. I would put unionization first, then taxes, then education. You know, taxes and unionization, are, are they kind of go hand in hand and you probably wouldn't get one without the other. So I don't know if there's a strict trade-off there. I think um, unionization not only... Um, helps with wages. It also creates a very important civil society institution. I mean, people belong to unions. It's part of the community. 
Uh, it helps people addresses, and crucially, it's a tool that helps addresses everyday problems in the workforce that regulations will not and really should not try to accomplish. So, you know, if you're worried about abuses with with the schedule or you know all kinds of other things that come up, and you know the way the way all this algorithmic um, you know monitoring of, of workers is happening right now, that sounds really dystopic and scary. You know, if you have a union that gives you one out that helps at least manage that kind of essential conflict that comes in the workplace between workers and bosses. So unions are important for the uh, income share and for the economy as well, but they also have an important social role that I think taxes don't necessarily just get at. Uh, though the tax rate is quite important and higher taxes on the rich not only raise money, that's quite important, but helps compress the income share. It will still raise money as it does that because inequality is so high, but it also helps um, create a, a kind of safety valve from people really turning the economy into an extractive form. It helps put a safety valve on an extractive economy. Um, if there are high tax rates, it will help compress the income distribution, which I think also really does help everyday people. I don't want to put down education. Education is incredibly important. People unfortunately have to indebt themselves in ways that have real consequences for their midlives uh, and in terms of starting businesses or families or buying a home. But in terms of the idea that more education will solve our inequality problems is just not true. We're, we're, um, the college premium has leveled off. Uh, we see even college graduates are struggling to get jobs. And largely what they're doing is simply moving themselves within a shared pot of uh, jobs. So they're just simply crowding out what used to be uh, simply high school jobs. So, uh, you know, I think the edu education is incredibly important. And I in no way uh, would not say not to educate yourselves to the best of your ability. But the idea that that will solve an individual solution like that will solve what is fundamentally a collective problem of who the economy works for. I just don't see that happening anymore time soon. Essentially, I heard you say about unionization that it's a twofer. Maybe it's more than a twofer, but not only does it do its own work to address equality, but it also builds social capacity and political capacity and power capacity to be a gift that keeps on giving, that pushes for more uh, equality. Is that a fair sum summation of what you said? I believe so, yes. So whichever you would have ranked first, I'd want to poke at a little bit. You ranked unionization first. What would you say to the person that says, yes, okay, great, you want to plug unionization. But if you were going to pick the thing that slows firms down most, that creates the biggest agency gap between the motives of the what's best for inventing that thing or distributing that thing or growing that thing or producing that thing and the interests of the workers who are doing it, uh, well, you'd pick the thing that's going to do the most to slow it down. Heck, look at the American auto industry getting beaten by the uh, the Japanese auto industry. Of course, you can quibble with that example pretty readily, but feel free to respond to that. And or are there collective ownership structures, whether it's just being employee-owned, whether it's more co-ops that should be looked at simultaneously with industrial era uh, unionization? Yeah, so, um, you know, one thing I think a lot of people are thinking through is something called sectoral bargaining. It's what's used in uh, Denmark and Scandinavian countries uh, and many other places um, to basically set worker conditions at the term of the sector as a whole. So no individual firm uh, is, you don't have a situation where some firms are unionized and some are not, and that maybe makes it harder vis-a-vis -vis each of them. Though I think uh, whatever harms come from unionization are, are more than benefited out on the other end. So there's obviously a huge conversation to have about unionization, but in terms of making a more equal society, there it's the reason it's evolved into a very important tool that is utilized everywhere or has been utilized everywhere and could be again. As for the, um, what was the other half of the question? 
Oh, the other piece was, are there additional ways? Oh, cooperatives. There you go. Uh, obviously, uh, cooperatives and employee-owned firms are really important. There are way more of them than you would think normally, actually. There are tons of uh, examples of firms that are employee-owned. But I, I think it is worthwhile remembering that for many firms, that won't be the case. For many firms, there's uh, they're so capital-intensive that there will end up being a distinct capital-owning class. And it's important to make them accountable and make them accountable to their workers. You can also end up in situations in which employees, um, say, get some amount of stock in their company, either through a, a wage deferral kind of thing or a government regulation. Uh, and that's great for workers, um, though not necessarily because now they're really tied to the one firm for their savings in addition to their labor income. But that doesn't necessarily give them a democratic say within the firm. Shareholders don't actually own the firm. Uh, they can do certain things, and like many stakeholders, they have certain rights and responsibilities. They get a vote for the board, they get to get dividends, they bear first uh, place risk. They don't necessarily have a say in how the firm is managed. That's the whole reason their uh, liability is limited in the first place. So just because uh, workers maybe have a lot of shares in the firm, they won't necessarily have a more just or equitable experience within the firm. So I think it's important to emphasize uh, more just and equitable uh, economic distribution across all these flanks. Um, that said, I think a lot of the platforms might be able to be run as co-ops. Uh, I think if you look at a lot of these uh, firms that have workers who say own the capital because they own the car and ride sharing app, or they own the tools because they say do a maid service on demand, you know, you could wonder if you could force those kinds of firms into being employee owned because the employees are the ones who are really owning the capital and bearing much of the risk. Financial sector, deregulation as distinct from maybe opposed to government oversight. Any lessons we should have learned from 2008 or that we should learn now? Anything we should be doing with respect to the financial sector that you would view as most important? If antitrust is on that list, what would you recommend with that? And that might be the last thing we have time to cover. The financial sector has so many things and so many problems that need to be solved. Um, even after Dodd-Frank, uh, that was passed through the Obama years. Uh, problem, it did not solve many problems and many more problems are apparent. Um, some things you may not necessarily think about. One is that um, we still don't have a really good, robust public banking system for people who are underbanked or unbanked, which is quite a large number of people. Um, and it really does impact our ability to do a lot of things. For instance, and this came up during the CARES Act, is a lot of people are, are waiting and will still be waiting uh, months from now to get their $1,200 uh, check that's meant to get out immediately to help bolster the economy. And that's because for a lot of people, they just don't have bank accounts and it's hard to get income to them. And so if we want a more robust um, ability to get income to people, whether it's because they have children or we have a child allowance, uh, or it's because there's another recession or, or this thing takes a double dip and we want to get another round of checks out, uh, having a public banking system, whether it's through the post office or through the Federal Reserve, uh, where everyone has a guaranteed account, I think would do quite a bit to solve a lot of the abusive practices. And you see this with a lot of public options, is that having a robust public option 
uh, is a regulatory check on a lot of predations that would come with, say, payday lenders or a lot of uh, unscrupulous actors in the financial sector. So that's one. Two is we think of things like private equity as distinct, I think, from the financial sector. But the way private equity interacts with firms, the way they take over firms and are very extractive towards them, is a particularly intense form of the shareholder primacy that has dominated corporate governance since the 1980s. And I think we're really seeing the tail end of that era end with a lot weaker investment, a lot higher profits for owners and, and wealth holders, but a, a much worse economy for everyone else. So when I think of antitrust in the financial sector, I actually think a lot about the asset managers, these huge companies um, that own a huge amount of retirement funds that can really set the terms for what kinds of businesses thrive in our economy. So I think not just in terms of finance, like your Goldman Sachs, your investment banks, your commercial banks, which are large and scary and can often collapse because they just don't have the um, capital that they're required, that they should have in order to survive a crisis. Uh, I also think a lot in terms of asset management and shareholder primacy is also financial sector problems. Uh, and I think we're starting to really understand them as real severe problems for our prosperity and for our growth. Well, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time. Let me finish with this question. I could listen to you and from it say, well, it sounds like a lot of the stuff I heard recently a candidate for president say, let's call that candidate Bernie Sanders. And therefore, I might want to sign on to political revolution. You are less sanguine or less enthusiastic by the phrase, or at least as far as I can tell, of the phrase, we need a political revolution. Is that fair to say? And if so, how come? Well, no, I, I mean, I think we definitely do need a political revolution. I'm just uh, a little worried about how and when it will come. Um, you know, like, I, I, I think, you know, it, it is worthwhile. You can get really beaten down by how grim things look right now, how um, the real threats that this recession poses to our states and our communities, um, to the fact that unemployment might be quite high for a long time, the real negative effect that has on people. It's important to not get too lost in the, the grimness of it and understand that there is always opportunities for change. And you know, there's a big election coming up, which will determine a lot about how we'll react to this recession. Uh, and there's everything, everyday things we can do in our communities to try to build power for everyday people. So people should absolutely be taking advantage of them. Um, because if not now, when? Mike Gonzel, Director of Progressive Thought. What a title of the Roosevelt Institute. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. And thanks for being a Democracy Nerd. Democracy Nerd is produced and recorded in X-Ray Studios. Thanks to producer Kyle Curtis and Chase Spross. Thanks also to Dan Curtis, Danny C. on SoundCloud for the music, and to Kat Buckley for the graphics. I'm Jefferson Smith. We are at the beginning of this. Please subscribe and give us a five-star review, even if it is only in the hopes that we eventually earn it. Help spread the word. You can check out X-Ray's podcast page, xraypod.com, for past Democracy Nerd episodes and other X-Ray offerings. And thank you, Democracy. Democracy.